Welcome to QUT Exec Insights, conversations about Australian business and the changing world. Brought to you by QUTX, professional and executive education for the real world. I'm your host, Kate Joyner. Today is another first for our series. I've stepped away from our usual lineup of distinguished QUT professors, and I'm talking to the next generation of QUT talent. So like many people, I was amazed at the news of the millions in prize money on offer uh, with different esports leagues. There was a trend here that was worth exploring. And uh, when I asked around QUT for someone to talk about this, I wasn't directed to a distinguished professor. I was uh, directed to Michael Trotter, who is currently completing a PhD, looking at performance in esports. But as well as this academic interest, he was uh, successful in an entrepreneurial fashion, uh, bringing esports to QUT as the co-founder of QUT Esports, which is Australia's first university esports program. Michael has a degree in psychology and is currently completing a PhD looking at performance in esports. He has a history in youth development and coaching and in outdoor education and snow skiing. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. So youth development and coaching and outdoor education. So I can see the link there between that and esports. Yeah, because your study looks at young people and how they engage in all sorts of activities, right? Yeah, that's correct. Mm. So the study that we're conducting at the moment is looking at um, what kinds of positive youth development are occurring within um, youth that are partaking in esports tournaments. Ah, uh, I see. So um, it, it can have that sort of positive uh, spin on it where we think of people, uh, kids playing video games as something negative, but it can in fact have a positive development yeah, impact. I, I completely agree with that. I, I think um, that traditionally video gaming uh, has has had a really bad negative stereotype to it. I think we think of, you know, unattractive, nerdy, sweaty, you know, young men sitting in their mum's basements playing video games till all hours of the morning Um and I think what we're beginning to see now is that that's changing. We're seeing uh, more young people taking part in in competitive video gaming, um, where they're forming teams and relying on um, their you know their social skills and ability to communicate and and uh, showing leadership uh, in order to overcome another team of players. Uh, but unlike sport where this all happens on a field and it's all involved with a degree of physicality, we're seeing esports now is occurring uh, in the digital space where the computers ultimately act like the football field and players have to uh, have to compete in, in that environment. Compete in that environment. So this is us. Uh, so if, um, I won't reveal my age, but let us just say your average baby boomer. So when we see this big prize money and it's for a thing called esports, um, and it seems to have just risen in um, public attention in the last year. So what is it and why is there so much prize money attached to it? So esports, esports is the competitive playing of video games. So it's very much structured in a similar way to what traditional sports is. So teams are pre-organized um, and they come together. Often at the elite level, they, they do so underneath an organization. So in much the same way as you'll have uh, the Brisbane Lions, the Brisbane Broncos as an organization that bring together players um, and have a, have a pathway towards their, their elite level players. Organizations exist um, in the world for esports as well where they, they um, recruit uh, the highest level players they can and they then compete against other organizations in a sports-like uh, tournament structure. So uh, and with that, um, those teams are then competing in in a in an organ, uh, organized 
uh, tournament that is developed by the publisher of the game. So, and those publishers often put forward um, a certain amount of money as a prize pool. Some publishers put forward that money uh, in its entirety. So, when we look at games like Fortnite, that in their first uh, season they they put forward a hundred million dollars in prize pool. Uh, where other games such as uh, the Dota International, which I think might be the one you're referring to, oh, okay, yes, uh, where, where a young Australian, um, age nineteen. That's why we saw it because it was an Australian who won. Yeah, yeah, I correct. See. So there's an Australian, a young Australian um, uh, who's, who's 19 years old, has now won that tournament uh, twice in a row as part of a, a broader team. So he won 4.2, I think, in the first yeah, round and a, maybe a similar amount. Yeah, it was slightly more in the second time around. I can't remember the exact statistic mm, of the first one. But serious money. It was mm. more than the second, the most recent winning in 2019 was $4.62 million. So that's up there with elite tennis, for example, in terms of prize pool money. Yes, that's correct. So um, he is now uh, winning. He has now won in the space of two years more than some um, some of our more well known uh, athletes that are competing in traditional sport. And imagine too. Then we'll explore this later. The skills involved, but potentially, if you are an elite um, esports player, you would have a longer career than maybe um, you know our elite tennis players, for example. Well. Um that uh, the, there is a potential for that in the future, but at the moment, the the lifespan of an elite player in, in esports is relatively short. Is that right? And why is that? Um, we still don't fully understand that, but I, I think it's because uh, with new players that are rising that are competing at a really high level, um, appearing on the scene, they'll often overtake the the um, uh, places of other other so low it's level just players. Churn. It can mm. be, yeah, it can mm. be, and I suppose um, there are definitely players that have that sit on the very, very top of of the uh, of the rank that have been around for a long time that are really well known, and that's probably not that much different from um, the selection process for games like AFL, where some players may, um, you know, be drafted and and may only last for maybe a season or two seasons. I um, see. Um, so this the the companies that own, what was the game that you mentioned that I think? I'm oh, okay. lose. so League, League of Legends. <laughs> League of Legends. Right. All right. That's one I haven't heard at all. So someone owns uh, the license for that game and they then own the tournament. Have I got that right? Yeah. So this is where it starts to get a little bit tricky. So um, there is a very, um, there's a bit of a delicate interplay between organisations players and um, the actual game publishers themselves. So the game publishers own um, the rights to to their individual game and they will on some occasions um, be the ones to organise the tournaments that then uh, organisations who are the ones that organise players will compete in. Uh, on other instances though there are some publishers that are much more open with uh, how their IP is used uh, and will happily have third party groups come in and run the tournaments on their behalf. I see. So uh, I can imagine if you, uh, to recruit a team, like you use the analogy of the Brisbane Lions, so your team could be anywhere, anyone internationally. Correct. That's right. So as an individual player, uh, as an Australian, to get on the, um, that particular team, it, it would be hugely competitive with that. Oh, Have I got 100%, that right? percent. Absolutely. Mm. Um, players uh, are, are in fact um, sourced from all around the world for different organisations and um, so, for example, there's a, a team called the Renegades, which is a primarily Australian team and has mostly Australian players in it that is based out of the United States. So um, it's not uncommon at all to see uh, to see teams selecting players from, from the entire global community, um, which does make it more tricky to uh, kind of rise to the very top of that heap and to find a way into one of these teams. The other thing that is a real issue is the fact that there's no grassroots pathway that has been established into these various different esports teams. So um, the method of getting selected is a little bit more tricky. 
So unlike in in um, NRL or in in local sporting teams here in Brisbane, where you, you'll start in high school and you'll work your way up into state level and you slowly but surely feed your way into into the elite level teams, that doesn't exist in esports. So the selection methods for players uh, ranges and is varied based on the different teams and how they how they would like to select. Uh, which makes life a little bit tricky for aspiring players and could potentially be part of the reason why um, there is a bit of a turnover in, in the lifespan of of players. Mm. So, oh, I see, because the, it's, uh, such a, uh, it's such a large potential pool that you can be overtaken more quickly. Um, correct. Mm. And the other thing is as well is we don't, um, we are yet to fully understand what determines the success of an esports competitor. We, we don't know how much psychology or fitness or game, game knowledge all plays a role in in the level of expertise. So this is in fact players. your research, Michael? Yeah, correct. So um, what we're currently looking at, uh, we, we've run a, a study that's been run over, the, um, that has been distributed worldwide and we've got players from a wide number of countries and we've got, we've got about 1,500 um, participants and we're looking at factors such as uh, how physically fit they are, how much social support they're receiving and partaking in esports, and what their psychology is like. So, how many uh, performance psychology um, tools they have at their disposal? How well self-regulated they are? So, it could be there's a correlation between the things that make traditional um, physical athletes um, successful and those that make esports uh, elite <laughs> uh, players <laughs> successful as well. Yeah, and that's that's what we're seeking to understand. Mm. So um, we can hear the results of your research maybe at another podcast, Michael. Yes. Mm. But we've mentioned the business elements um, of esports. So, I mean, a prize pool of $100 million probably means that the industry is worth I don't know how many billions. Um, yeah, I think the, the industry at the moment is sitting over a billion dollars US uh, and it's, it's receiving at the moment I think about a 20% annual um, uh, increase. So the, the, the growth of the esports industry is, is quite phenomenal. It is. So that's just the sports element to it. So the actual um, sale of games or participating in games is... is uh, oh, it would be much, much greater much than greater that. Much greater than that. Yeah, I don't have any specific figures on that, but the, um, the game publishers themselves uh, would, be making, would be making a mm. lot more. And, and um, is there a relationship between the two? So uh, it, you probably... Did, uh, this is my boomer brain, Michael, again. So those who own the, the rights to the games also probably run the – like have an interest in the tournaments as well. So it's a it's an integrated industry. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And I think if we look at – so we, we spoke a little earlier about um, the 19-year-old that won that really large proportion of money. So that particular tournament is quite interesting in the way that the prize pool is funded. So um, the, the tournament itself is owned by Valve which is the publisher, uh, and they contribute a little over, I think it's uh, a little over a million dollars towards the prize pool. However, the prize pool itself is valued at about 35 or just below $35 million. So then the question is, well, how does that money get, where does that money come from? And the answer is um, that a lot of it comes from within in-game sales. So Valve actually sells skins and in-game cosmetics as, as well as stickers and various other things in-game. Uh, and a proportion of the money that goes towards that um, those sales is then taken and put into the prize pool. Cool. I, believe, I, see. I believe it's about 25%. So Valve themselves make an enormous amount of money off, um, off the, the generation of that prize pool and in-game sales. So in some respects, um, eSports could be seen as, as a marketing, as part of the marketing tool for the broader sale of the game themselves, 
which is a little bit different from traditional sports. I see. I'm beginning to see the shape of the industry here. It's all becoming more clear to me. So um, I, in preparing for the podcast, I was reading that universities are taking serious interest mm. um, in esports, um, building facilities. So I, I read that the University of California, for example, had built you know, some magnificent stadium dedicated to esports and were funding scholarships and so forth. So I guess that's another thing that thought, oh, my goodness, this is definitely um, something to pay attention to. So, you know, to some of us it seems like a really serious investment um, uh, for us that thought that, yes, had the image of um, sweaty young men <laughs> in a basement. But um, so what are we, uh, why are the universities doing this and what's their sort of end game, do you think? I think... The universities are, are interested in, in esports because it's a new and emerging industry and uh, with, with this new industry there are going to be lots of opportunities for research. Um, so not only in the playing of the game, so from our perspective, you know, we're researching the psychology and the fitness elements of, of esports, but you've also got to look at things like you know, the marketing element, the business element of the industry, the laws that are in and around playing. Um, there's no, there's no uh, body within Australia that... Um, represents you know, the regulation of the industry, of the esports industry. There are a number of groups that are kind of uh, positioning themselves towards that goal, but they haven't made it yet. So there are lots of different uh, elements that need to be researched uh, and need evidence to be put behind them. And so one of the, I think one of the opportunities that a university sees in this space is the opportunity to, to uh, fulfill that need and to create lots of research. And there are lots of researchers who are interested in, in being on the forefront. So if, if you create the phenomenon itself, you've got a, you've, you've got a ready-made um, study site, is it, for uh, studying some of the phenomena absolutely. of eSports? Yeah, oh, I absolutely. See. I think uh, the other two elements to, to the area that uh, universities are quite interested in is, is one is in student attraction. So um, there are so many young people that are coming through who are highly interested in esports and as of yet, like we mentioned earlier, there's not a lot of grassroots opportunities and that, that extends not only into playing but also into getting into industry. Um, so universities are hoping to position themselves as, a, as an environment where students can come and learn the practical skills behind um, you know, running an esports tournament, managing an esports team, being a player within an organisation uh, as well as all of the, the different technical elements that go on behind the scenes. I, so I can see that. So it's an industry and um, it's, a, it's a sports management um, kind of approach as yeah. well as actually playing. So yeah. was that your um, interest in uh, bringing esports to QUT? So tell us that story. How did, what, what was your – there's a little story of entrepreneurship that I like here. So tell us the story about how you brought it to our university. Yeah, okay. So the story of how esports came to QUT is a bit of an interesting one actually. So um, the, my co-founder Dylan Polis and I uh, were at the time still in our undergrad of psychology and we were talking about the fact that it was interesting that we found it so much easier to play video games and to learn every aspect of a video game than what it was necessarily to read our, our textbooks. I think that the quote was that, you know, it was easy to play 15 hours of video games and read 15 minutes of a textbook. Um, <laughs> it's a, a depressing statistic <laughs> there, Michael. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, but the I think the thing that was interesting about that was, you know, why is it that I'm applying all of the same kind of research skills towards understanding the, the inner workings of a video game and why am I so driven to do that um, and yet I don't have necessarily the same drive towards um, you know, my studies toward, you know, towards my psychology and, and why is that? And uh, we kind of came up with the idea, well, maybe, maybe video gaming, we're looking at it in the wrong way. Maybe there was an opportunity to actually harness the passion that young people have for video gaming in order to be able to help them further their careers. Um, and so 
we uh, it was about the same time that we were having this conversation that we saw a lot of the uh, information that was coming out of the University of California, Irvine, and they had just released and opened their new arenas uh, on campus. And we saw this and we thought, wow, this is amazing. What they're doing is incredible. There's so many opportunities here for students. It's opening so many doors. And we were then surprised to find that nobody in Australia was doing this. Um, so we actually contacted the University of California, Irvine, to ask ask them, you know, what, what were they doing? How were they so successful? Uh, and if they had any tips for us. And they were they were kind enough to kind of give us a few, a few pointers and a few directions in which we might go. Um, and from there, we went and spoke to the Australian industry. So we reached out to the head of um, ESL Australia, who is Australia's largest esports um, independent organisation. So they run a lot of the tournaments that publishers, um, you know, pay them to run. Uh, so they, you know, they gave us some tips and they gave us some opportunities to link our program in with with them. And and from there, we we said, okay. Uh, we need a space on campus and we, we went and knocked on a few doors and kind of scraped together all of the resources that we possibly could from anyone who would give them to us. And uh, and on the first day of Open Day, we opened the doors. And within six months, we had a 700-student-strong uh, community and and then we went and took a business case forward to the university and said this is how we, we believe that the university will most prosper from the concept of esports on campus and, and this is how we believe that, um, that it, we, it'll fund itself. That sounds easy. I'm sure it wasn't. Uh, that you didn't. You, I think you might have glossed over maybe some of the barriers. I imagine the first response you get, Michael, honestly, was um, uh, how does how is this sport? Is that right? Or yeah, definitely. Mm. I think that's. I think that's the first thing that we always get is um, it's computer gaming isn't a sport, and we get that get that quite frequently. And and yes, we got that a little bit. I think that um, one of the things which really helped us get over the line in, in the initial. Um, kind of part of, of our convincing of the university was the sheer enthusiasm that we had. Um, being a little naive, we uh, the first one of the first people we approached at QT was actually in the chancellery and we just walked into their office <laughs> and we walked straight past the receptionist and I think we must have done it with enough confidence that they thought we were supposed to be there. For those of us who don't know university cultures, that's something you never do. No, no. As, uh, <laughs> it, it takes the naivety of youth to do that. Yeah, I, it, it's, um, I think we've learned that that was a bit of a social faux pas, but we, we walked in and we sat down and we said, look, we have, we have an idea. We've got a cunning idea. And um, uh, David Fagan, who was in the Chancellery at the time, was kind enough to hear us out. And so we sat down and we'd made a video and so we showed it to him and explained what we wanted to do and... Um, his comment was something along the lines of, um, "Look, I don't really understand esports, um, but you, you, you boys are very uh, clearly very passionate about this." Um, and so, over time, we continued to kind of build on the idea and, and continued to pitch to him and various others in the chancellery, and eventually got over the line um, and managed to drum up that support. Mm. Um, Good but, move. Well done. Yeah, thanks. Mm. So where are we physically located? Is it at um, Kelvin Grove? No, actually here, here, on, here, here at Gardens Point. Point. Yeah, okay. So over See, in, as much as I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here also at Gardens Point. Yeah, over at, uh, over at X-Block on the, on the oh, okay. floor, ground floor mm. of X-Block there is on the, the side just beside Aromas Cafe we've got the arena there that's got a, uh, a bunch of high-end gaming machines and it's a space that's been very specifically designed to, to meet the needs of, of video games on campus. There is a stadium there. And I have not known about this. Yes. What does that say <laughs> about me? Or, or the, you know, if I asked all my academic colleagues, they probably wouldn't know either. But they will after this podcast, Michael. Mm. I'll make sure everybody knows. So um, I'd imagine like the at the University of California, Irvine, there's some very specific ways that you would design um, a space like that if you actually wanted to hold a tournament. 
if it was purpose built, for yeah, example. Yeah, definitely. So uh, the way the way that the space here at QT is designed um, is to meet two very distinct users of the space. So before we before we kicked the program off, we actually did a whole bunch of uh, user user um, group um, testing, I suppose you'd call it. So we, we sat down and interviewed as many students as we could that played games on campus to identify. Okay, so what are the different personas here? Who are our different users? Um, and there were there were really uh, two broad categories. So one was kind of a social, the social user, the people who were interested in partaking in competitive video gaming for the purpose of meeting other students and forming social bonds. And then there were those who were much more interested in trying to climb the ranks and who are uh, playing the game of the game. Correct. Right? Mm. So the space at QT has been designed in a very particular way. So when you walk into the space, um, the very front of the room is much more open, has a slightly higher ceiling. Um, to enable a kind of um, a welcoming environment and, and students that are in that space uh, have got a little bit more space and have got a, a, a chair in the middle of the room where they can sit and talk and discuss what's happening in games or in tournaments and, and, and connect socially in that, in that space and, and that's where they form friendships and all of those things. And at the back of the room the ceiling is much lower um, and it's uh, the the design and the color scheme in that in that space is designed to be a bit more um, in and around helping people to focus, uh, and so in that space there's less talking and there's much more focus on the game itself and developing strategies. And also at the very back of the room there's an interactive whiteboard where students can actually pull up replays and discuss strategies and tactics, and and they can run coaching sessions and and teach and learn different uh, different skills. Uh, tell me the um, the gender breakup of the participants. I'm imagining it's mostly male. But yeah, correct. Mm. Um, look, it's it's an issue which which has has been flagged time and time again in the esports space. Um, there is definitely a trend towards more male particip- participation than female participation. Um, and in countries that have got more established esports uh, systems, that that difference is less. So in places like uh, South Korea, which is um, you know almost kind of the mecca of esports, um, where they've got government bodies that are involved in regulating uh, re- regulating the esports scene and, and all of those things, the the gender disparity is less than what it is in countries that are kind of um, less developed in that sense. Less developed, so that it it requires a bit of institutional support um, to get females to be able to participate in these you know amazing prize pools. So yeah, I think I think it's um. I think it takes a, a wide range of different factors to, to be involved and, and um, it's, a, it's a, something that we're still trying to figure out how to solve. I think part of it is which games become super popular. Um, so do women less like the, sh- I'm imagining, I'm hoping, they less like the shoot em up, um, kind of kill everything sort of games? Or I think it, uh, it, it depends on, uh, I think it depends on, on the, the, the specific game. So I think Overwatch is a really great example of a game which is doing some some really good things in moving towards having more uh, equal gender participation. So one of the ways they've done that is they've got a variety of different characters that can be played in the, in the game that are of um, both genders and of all different body types and um, there's a, a great deal less sexualization in a game like that uh, versus something like Counter-Strike which is um, you know terrorists versus counter-terrorists and is um, a very violent um, in nature, um, both of those games are still first-person shooters to a, you know to a degree, um, but there's just a difference in the way that they're approached. And, and I think that's there's one element of of that story is you know how do the game publishers design their games, but it also comes down to how uh, as a community do we operate. I think one of the real barriers is that at the moment a lot of video games are played online and in your room, and so what that means is is that 
really you can uh, kind of almost act however it is you want online and there's almost no repercussions to that. Uh, by bringing esports into uh, an environment like a university where players are all in the same room, social norms can much more easily be controlled. Um, so things like toxicity and sexism and all of those kind of um, really negative uh, behaviours that we tend to, to think of when we think video gaming can be much more easily stamped out in those environments. And I think that's going to be particularly important to start implementing um, for, for the young people who are coming through, even from the perspective of in high school, um, where we have a real opportunity to really set the base level of, of what is and what is not acceptable. So that's kind of uh, gets me onto my very final question, which is um, what we might see um, in the next three to five years in this space. So, do we see um, price pools even ballooning even further, and the development of more and different um, kinds of games? I mean, once uh, th- those kind of price pools are huge attractors, mm-hmm. I'd imagine. So, I mean, it caught my baby boomer attention. It would catch other pe- parents' attention, and suddenly, you know, we have more participation. It's something that I can uh, foresee. What What do you see? Yeah, I think that the, there are definitely going to be games such as the Dota International where those prize pools are just going to keep growing. I, I would think that those numbers are just going to keep getting bigger and bigger every year. Um, I think a lot of it is also going to depend on what kind of technology exists. So um, because esports is is a digitally mediated um, competition, what we're going to see as far as technology goes is that things like VR at the moment aren't necessarily as entertaining or as accessible to, to especially young people. The cost of, of, owning, um, uh, of owning a VR headset and being able to partake in those games is much higher and much more difficult versus something like a, you know, a laptop which you can play all kinds of esports games on. And so I think as we see that technology develop, I think we'll see the wide, um, the opportunities for different ways in which esports games can develop change a lot. And in fact, some of those, especially VR games, may even end up having a more physical um, kind of element to them. We may see them start to move closer and closer towards um, traditional sports in that in that area. Amazing. So watch this space. Maybe we'll reconvene in a little while, Michael, and we can see where it's all gone. But congratulations on um, bringing esports to QUT, the first university esports program. And uh, thank you for your contribution to QUT Exec Insights. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of QUT Exec Insights, brought to you by QUTX, Executive Education for the Real World. You can comment on the podcast or make suggestions for future guests at execinsights at qut.edu.au. We would love to hear from you. If you would like more information about professional development for yourself or your team, please search QUTX, that's Q-U-T-E-X, and you will find our full range of programs. I'm your host, Kate Joyner, with sound recording and editing by Lance Scaife-Elliott. See you next time.